Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. This morning we're going to read the entirety of Jesus' woes on the Pharisees, um, found in Matthew 23. It's a long section of scripture from, 20, uh, from 13 through verse 36. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we look at God's word together. And remember I'm reading from the Bible that I'm considering for myself. And we don't have an official Bible as a church, but it may be one that we use called the Legacy standard it's not the one you'll see on your screen this is the word of god but woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people for you do not enter in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites because you devour widows houses and for a pretense you make long prayers therefore you will receive greater condemnation Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is obligated. You fools and blind men, for which is more important, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctified the gold? Whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering, he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the sanctuary swears both by the sanctuary and by him who dwells within it. Whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In this way, you also outwardly appear religious to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, 
How will you escape the sentence of hell? On account of this, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we come to you this morning asking you to illuminate it. I pray that my words may not be my words, but yours, that by your Holy Spirit and with power, there may be conviction brought by these words. Father, this morning we have prayed for a number of people in our congregation. Pray that you will also be with those we love who have changed in some ways or have lost. We pray for the Marcus family and the loss of Steve's dad. And we pray, Father, that you'll comfort them. We pray also that you'll be with Maddie and Ross in their new marriage. May it be blessed. May this first day of their life together be the first of many wonderful days. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be spending the amount of time that we have between now and when I am no longer on the platform for the summer in this chapter looking at this group of people, looking at the Pharisees. And you may wonder what is it about the Pharisees that is worthy of the next four or five weeks. I haven't planned it entirely out. I know that we'll break from it for Easter. But as you listen to this passage, it should be clear to all of us that the Pharisees are a danger, a terrible danger, and that Jesus says he's going to be sending prophets and preachers against them, and they're going to continue to kill them. And if you think the Pharisees are a localized sect that existed only in first century A.D. Judaism and maybe a few centuries before that, well, then it might, might well appear to you overkill to spend this many weeks on this group. But if you realize that Jesus says that, that he's going to be sending prophets and priests and preachers against the Pharisees, and they're going to be killing them. You realize that it's the Pharisees that are, that are killing the truth for as long as the church is in existence. And that all the blood of all the righteous generations is going to be laid at their feet means that they are guilty of all the opposition to God that takes place by those who claim to be his. It may seem strange that this group that is, uh, in many respects, the group that you would think that would be closest to Jesus, the, the friends of Jesus, the ones that Jesus should be near to and like, that this group is the one that hates him more than any other group. And you understand as well that Jesus opposes this group more viscerally with greater depth of feeling than any other group. 
well, then it becomes a little more apparent the danger they represent. The word of God calls you to fear the Pharisees, to fear them, to fear their influence in your life. Why should you fear the Pharisees, this group that arose for a good reason to keep the Jewish religion alive during the years of the exile when they had no temple? This group that said, we're going to continue to worship God, even though we can't do it in the way that he has said we should in his word, we're going to do it in a way that is accommodated to our circumstances and we're going to honor God. This group that began, we believe, with the teaching and work of the scribe Ezra and continued on from there. That this group would become the group that are the preeminent enemies of Christ is kind of astounding. And it seems perhaps that something has to be wrong, that Jesus is opposed to them and that they're opposed to Jesus. And something has to be wrong that we would be talking about them as a current threat. So why should we fear the Pharisees? Well, Luther once said he didn't fear the Pope in Rome as much as he feared the Pope in his own breast. He said, there's a little bit of the Pope in me and everyone, a little bit of the proud, arrogant guy who wants to be in charge of everything. And he said, and I fear that in me more than I fear that Pope in Rome. And that's true. And it's true of the Pharisees as well. You should, you should fear the Pharisee in your own heart as much as the external Pharisees of this world. And yet Jesus deals with this class as a group that is... Um, external to him and to his disciples. And we need to recognize that if there is going to be the growth of a Pharisee in your own heart, it's going to be through the teaching of the Pharisees who are external to you. And so you should fear the class of the Pharisees. Jesus' opposition to them, the intensity of it, the violent words that he uses about this group, you sons of hell, you, that teaches us something about why we should fear them, the, the very intensity of Christ's opposition. That's the first reason. Jesus opposed them more violently and with greater vehemence than any other group that he ever spoke against. He didn't deal with the Sadducees and he didn't deal with the Herodians, but boy, did he take it to the Pharisees. They're a threat. That's the first reason, Jesus' opposition. The second is that the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, sometimes it's thought that his Pharisaical training, his background, were wasted. That God had him grow up under Gamaliel, the chief Pharisee of the day, one of the most famous of all time be taught by him and to be a student of the great Gamaliel and himself a legend in the making in his own pharisaical pursuits so that God could show that he doesn't value the things of man so that he could say, cut it all off and now I'm sending you to the Gentiles. 
I don't care. You've had all that, and it means nothing because you're going to the Gentiles. And sometimes I've even thought that way, but as I thought about the Pharisees, and as I've considered Paul, it struck me that no, no, absolutely not. Paul was sent as the apostle to the Gentiles as a Pharisee so that when the Pharisees came into the Gentile church and started preaching their garbage, their lies, there'd be a Pharisee there at the head of the church who could say to them, you won't do that here. None of that. We know that it was the Pharisees who were the Judaizers in the early church, and Paul is constantly talking against the Judaizers, dealing with the errors introduced by the Judaizers. And it tells us in Acts 15 that some of the Judaizers who were saying, you must keep the the law and you must be circumcised, who were of the party of the Pharisees were troubling the church. And so Pharisees came into the church and they were teaching their truths as they saw them, and Paul was standing there, a Pharisee of Pharisees, to say, no. And so Paul's calling as a Pharisee of Pharisees was essential to the preservation of the church, a man who could fight Pharisaism, a man who knew it inside and out and who could speak against it, and that's the second reason. The third reason why we should fear the Pharisees is that the error of the Pharisees is an eternal error. It just keeps on going and going. It is the gift that keeps on giving and giving and giving. The Pharisees have never died. They just spin off new subsets. But in reality, the Pharisaism of the Pharisees of Jesus' day, the Pharisaism that allowed them to come to the point where the Messiah was in their midst, the whole hope that the original Pharisees had been looking towards and had been preaching about and had been working towards and and the whole desire of the original Pharisees, Jesus has come and they say, nope, 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 and they move on and they continue. And today in Judaism, wherever there is an observant Jew, we have a child of the Pharisees. A person who thinks and has been able through the strategies of the Pharisees, thinks like the strategies and is able to worship the God of the Bible while ignoring the Son of God. Pharisaism lives and the Jews today will tell you that Pharisaism is what has kept Judaism alive in the circumstances that it's gone through ever since Jesus was on earth. Pharisaism is Judaism today. Look the Jews say it. You you can go and find this online. You can look at histories of the Jews and they'll tell you that modern observant Judaism is entirely the product of Pharisaism. And so we have Pharisaism today, but as, as Christians, it's not the Jewish Pharisees that are the problem. The Pharisees were a group that took their tradition their oral tradition that they added to the Bible in a way that was intended initially to keep the Bible relevant, but that eventually allowed them to deny Jesus Christ and to become the kind of hypocrites who talk about the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, they go, huh, huh? Utter hypocrisy. (laughs) And so we have in the Pharisees Something that is known to us in the church today. Oral tradition that allows us to escape obedience to God. Have we heard of it? Do we know of it? Well, of course, some of you who grew up Roman Catholic will say, well, you're talking about the Roman Catholics because they've added their tradition. 
the tradition of the Pope, the tradition of the Curia, the tradition of the, the magisterium over the centuries has come together and we have not only the Bible, but we have the tradition, the teachings that have been gathered just as the Pharisees gathered the oral traditions of the past. So in Roman Catholicism, they've been gathered. And we say, yeah. And at the end, at the time of the Reformation, the Protestants, Martin Luther and the rest, rightfully said, no, you have departed from the truth. But of course, it's a gift that keeps on giving. And those of us who can see that the Roman church has followed this path, this pharisaical path that adds tradition and ends up leaving Jesus behind. It's not just in Rome. It's in your life. It's in mine. It's in our church. Imagine a church that says we are devoted to the word of God. We are devoted to the salvation that is in Jesus. But if you try to obey Jesus, you aren't a Christian because that's not faith. Now, does that sound crazy? Do you think that for the first thousand years of the history of the church that anyone would have seen obedience as opposed to faith? Anyone? If you had said it, obedience, that's bad. You must trust. If you'd said that, people would have said, you've, you've lost your, your mind. You, you're out of your ever-living mind. Your, your gourd has gone bad. But that idea is enthroned in Protestantism. That those who seek to obey are bad. And those who call you to obey, well, they're, they're the Pharisees. Because they're telling you to do works rather than to trust Jesus. Can you imagine this kind of teaching being embraced that we don't need to obey God? Can you read the Bible and come to the conclusion that Jesus doesn't want you to obey him? Can you read Paul and not come to the conclusion that the obedience of faith is central to faith? So let's not talk about Rome. Let's not talk about the Pharisees and Judaism. Let's talk about the Pharisaism that lives in our faith, in our hearts that we're taught and that we have lapped up and like so much because it allows us to be hypocrites, to speak of God, to talk in stentorian voices of God, God, the church, the Reformation, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Luther, John Calvin, ah! But when it comes to obedience, you go, ba, 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 yeah, obe ooh, obedience. Obedience, isn't that a bad thing? Didn't we learn that obedience is against faith? Hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of the modern church, Pharisaism, through and through in its very essence. And we have been taught it, and we have lived it, 
and we don't even know what to call it because it's so woven through the warp and woof of our lives. It's the fiber and the fabric of our being. So, Jesus opposed the Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee. Pharisaism is an ongoing threat to your life. Now, in our passage, Jesus pronounces three woes. And these woes get, really the first one is kind of a general oversight. And then we go to some kind of repugnant, specific indications of the, of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And then as you go on, you, I mean, you heard it as I read it. And as you were following along, as you go on, it gets deeper and deeper until the point where Jesus is, I don't, I mean, I don't want to be irreverent, but it's almost as though by the end of this, Jesus is foaming at the mouth at the Pharisees. That's how, how this progresses. You know, he starts talking and he's talking about widows and their houses. And by the end, he's talking about all the blood of all the men who were killed, all the righteous men, all the prophets. It's going to be laid at your feet. And you go, ooh, ooh, ooh. So we're going, to, we're going to begin with some specifics about the Pharisees that I think are helpful in understanding when you're being taught and led by Pharisees, when perhaps if you are seeking to teach, or perhaps if you're listening to them and, and liking what they say, you may actually be embracing not the, con not the role of a Pharisee, but the hypocrisy that they teach, okay? Well, that's a distinction that I hope I can make clear in a minute. Not the role, but, but the teaching. Uh, so the Bible says, Jesus says, that the first woe is that the, the Pharisees shut off heaven by refusing to enter themselves. And by this obstinance in themselves of refusing to enter, they are holding everyone back. They're standing there going, no, no, I'm not going in. You don't go in either, you know? Like the line at Cedar Point where the one guy is, you know, showing off to his girlfriend and everyone else is having to wait because he's blocking the entire line at Cedar Point. That's what the Pharisees are. No, we're not going to go. Pay attention to us. Don't think about Millennium or Magnum Force or any of those things. Think about me, you know? This is the Pharisees. They don't want people to go to Jesus. They want people to stop with them. Now, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You don't go in yourselves, and you, nor do you allow those who are entering, those who want to, to go in. They're hypocrites because they don't go in. They teach it. They don't go in. They speak it. They don't go in. And they keep others, even though they're telling them to seek the kingdom of heaven, they're keeping them from entering. Now, they're not consciously or wittingly shutting the kingdom of heaven off from others, are they? If you say to them, you're keeping people out of heaven, they'd say, no, not so. We're keeping the people from Jesus. We want them to go to heaven, right? They would say, and these men have no idea who they are. Jesus at one point says to them, you're of your father. They say, we know who our father is. Our father is Abraham. We know who he is. And he says, if you knew who your father was, you'd know. And then he says, no, you are of your father, the devil. And they go, what? And they have no idea that they're tools of Satan. They think they're the henchmen of God. They think they are the, the necessary servants of God, doing the will of God, expressing. And so let me, let me begin by saying, Pharisees don't ever know they're Pharisees. Yeah, they never know 
their hypocrisy. They never know that they're shutting people off and they're not entering. They think, and everyone thinks of them, no, they're the guides, they're the good guides, they're the, they're the people who show us the way. But Jesus says, no, you're shut, you are hypocrites because you are not entering. And so we find the Pharisees holding to a form of religion, but denying its power. They have a form of godliness, but it's, it doesn't make it to Jesus. Therefore, it doesn't make it to God. Therefore, it is in every heavenly way impotent. It's what you can do by human power. It's lacking the power of God. It stops short of the glory of God. It is without Christ it will not bow to Jesus. It stands on the threshold of the kingdom of heaven and refuses to go in. It is a form of Christianity that seems complete, or of Judaism, that seems complete in every way. It looks, sounds, and acts like the church of the apostles. It looks and sounds like a world-conquering faith. It looks today like it is the real thing, the heirs of the Reformation. But it lacks Christ. It stands outside the door of heaven. It claims that it's in the center of heaven, standing before the throne, and it's outside the door. It claims it's powerful, but it's not. It claims to have Christ, but it doesn't. It claims to have glory, but its glory is human. It rejects the door to the kingdom. So... Jesus expresses these three criticisms of the Pharisees in the two woes. We've looked at this first one for two weeks already. The Pharisees do not enter. They refuse to enter and they keep others out. They are, in a sense, gatekeepers to heaven. Now, self-appointed, but they are standing at the door. They're guardians of all that is sacred, keepers of the flame, the flame of Moses and the law and yet deadly, because they stand in the gates of heaven. Jesus says they're close enough that they're blocking the way. It means they're close. They're not like the Sadducees so far away that Jesus doesn't even bother about them. No, Pharisees, the Sadducees are way out in left field. They're not blocking anyone from home plate. The Pharisees are the catchers and the third baseman. They're right there in the midst of the action, and they're saying, no way, you're not getting through us. You're not going home. They are heaven's gatekeepers, self-appointed. They will not go in, and they will not allow others to go in as well. Solid men, holy men, pure men, as they think, devoted to God's law. But over time, in their defense of that law, their place as teachers of Israel, their, their interpretations of the law, that they, they change the law to make it fit the times. They have come up with a law that lets them be at the center and denies the thing that the law is all about, Jesus Christ. Imagine that. They are something. Jesus is nothing. They are something. Christ, nothing. So they pronounce in their deep voices, God, temple, Moses, Abraham, our father, holy, obey. 
in their gravest tones, filled with their stentorian authority, deep, powerful. But they don't love what they speak of. No, they don't. God, Messiah, law, hypocrisy. They don't love it. They love their own voices. They love their own prominence. They obey their own rules, worship their own grandeur, proclaim their own wisdom. And the ultimate proof of this is found in the fact that when they speak the name that is above every name, it's the name that at, every, at which every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, the name of Jesus, Jesus, their voices drip disdain. They say, God, they go, Jesus. Gatekeepers of heaven, guardians of the law, and yet haters of God, that's these men. He is here. His power has been revealed. The day that they claim to be living for, the day of the coming of the Messiah, has come. Their work is accomplished and their goal achieved, if their goal was what it started out as. Judaism has survived. The exile has not done it in. There are Jews in Jerusalem. There is worship at the temple. Everything they've said is their goal is accomplished. The Messiah has come, and they go. <laughs> the gatekeepers of the kingdom are seeking to kill the son of the king. That's what's happening here. They're going to kill Jesus. So that's the first woe, gatekeepers of the temple gatekeepers of heaven but they will not worship jesus and hypocrites second well they devour widows houses and they make long prayers for show they're tied these are known traits of the pharisees this this verse if you look in your bibles it will say it well it's not found in the earliest and best manuscripts and so forth and nonsense Jesus says that the Pharisees speak many words in their prayers and not to be like them. It's also well known that the Pharisees had a, a curious relationship to women. I meant to bring it in, I don't have it. A, an article from the Harvard Review of Theology on, it was published about 12 years ago, on the relationship between the Pharisees and wealthy and significant women in Judaism. Pharisees were were the party of the rich and older Jewish women. Uh, they, they gained prominence because they, they stood up back 100, 150 years before Christ, they stood up for a woman who wanted to succeed her husband, to have a queen. And they said, it's okay for a woman to be queen. We, that's fine. And they supported her and she supported them. And from then on, it was seen as the, the, the method of the Pharisees to power. They ruled through powerful women and through wealthy women. So Jesus speaks here and says, Josephus speaks about this and you'll find many different things that give testimony to this, all right? 
you look at Josephus and he has this in there. He says the, the, the Pharisees ruled over women. Sometimes it's, if you're looking it up in, uh, in Josephus, the word that is used in the old translations is in, inveigled, I-N-V-E-I-G-L-E-D. You can look it up and see that I'm telling you the truth. The Pharisees came into power by a sort of compact with wealthy women and they ruled through them. They were the party of upper crust women in Judaism and they devoured the houses of widows. It doesn't say they stole them. You may think it means stole. No, they didn't take the houses and purloin them. It's hard to put a house in your pocket and sneak out. They did it in in more legitimate forms. They they insinuated themselves into the lives of older women. They flattered them, they played to them, and they got given the houses. They devoured them. The house monster. This is the Pharisees, old women's house. Oh, we prey on the older women. And we get now. At this point, I I, I want I have to speak truths that are unpleasant in in our day. They're recognized in other days. But um, widows are easy prey. Everyone knows it. Some years ago, I, I got a call from my mother. She was concerned because a good friend of hers whose husband was an attorney lived down the road. My mother was in her mid-80s, had done something that she wasn't sure that my, my mother was not sure she should have done. There had been a group of men traveling through the neighborhood and going from house, and they came to my mother's house and they said, uh, ma'am, we can see that your garage roof is in terrible shape. It's a flat roof and we can see, see those areas of dirt. If you don't take care of that, it's going to lead to the ruin of your entire house. You need to get your house fixed. And we can do it. We're going through and working on houses and we'll fix your house. So that she said, well, yeah, if it's going to ruin my house, yes, please. They went up on the garage roof and they did something that made the sort of gray, I don't know what it was, EPDM or whatever it was, some kind of flat membrane across the roof that turned it tea colored. I think they poured iced tea on it, right, from looking at it. That's about what it looked like. They came downstairs in an hour and said, okay, you're safe now, ma'am. And their bill was $5,000. And my mother went and got her checkbook. And her good friend called, I've told this, her good friend called from down the road and Mud said, wow, they worked an hour and it was five. And Mrs. Kuhn said, Mary Lou, you tell them you're not paying them. And my mother said, I can't do that. And Mrs. Kuhn said, Mary Lou, tell them you're not going to pay them. And Mud said, no, I've got to pay them. I told them I'd pay them and I've got to pay them. I've got the check right here. I'm going to... And then Mrs. Kuhn then said, okay, Mary Lou, I'll tell you what, you take them that, tech, that check, but you tell them that your neighbor has just called the police on them. Well, my mother went down and she said, I don't know why, but my neighbor's calling the police on you. And they ran without taking the check. Old women are easy prey. And there's a certain type of religious man who preys on old women. I think half the televangelists make 90% of their income from widows. 
It's easy to get older women to give you things. And that's this kind of man. They devour the houses of old women. So I want to tell you that when you see men in positions of religious authority who are making their advance by claiming to be on the side of the women, by catering to women, by, by loving the women of the church rather than the men, think in your mind, Pharisee. Evangelicalism has been cursed with pastor after pastor, prominent pastor after prominent pastor who said, I'm for women, I'm for women, I'm for women. And they became famous pastors with vast followings and then it became clear how much they were for women, how very much they liked women. Real men of God deal with men. I know this is a hard thing to hear, especially from an older white male, but I bet you I could get Julius to say it so it wouldn't need to be white. All right? (laughs) My father told me and told my brother when we were young, go for the men. Go for the men in your church and the women will follow. You agree, Julius? Amen. And if the pastors, if the religious leader is always catering to the women, then you know you've got something, something screwy, something fishy. Okay. They do long public prayers. I'm really against long public prayers. I don't like long public prayers because of this. Now, Jesus does pray long at the high priestly prayer, and Solomon's prayer is a long prayer, so, but I'm always worried that I'm actually praying for people to hear it and to be seen rather than praying to God. I like short public prayers. All right, that's the second woe. These two things. Woe three, they travel land and sea to make one proselyte, and when they succeed, they make him twice the son of hell. That they are. That's a very interesting statement. Uh, the, the Pharisees were very influential, very, very influential. And they had many people following them, and many women loved them. But this is talking about a proselyte, and that's the actual cognate word in Greek, same word in Greek. And it means to one who becomes like them, one who takes up their, their message, who, who takes up their form of life. And so they can get many people to follow them or in some way or another, but they can't make men, because Pharisees were men, they can't make men easily to follow them because men don't want to do it. Does that make sense? Men don't want it. Men, women flock after them. Men go, Ugh. So they have to go all over land and sea to get one follower, and then when they get a follower, they make him into twice the son of hell that they are. In our neighborhood growing up, there was a, a household that in the, in the late 60s put up a fence around the whole house, and in the 60s had television cameras watching the whole yard. The family was Sicilian in the outskirts of Chicago, 
very Sicilian. The, the father ran some kind of business. We never knew what it was. Okay? In, in high school, my best friend was Mark Lagna. And Mark was as Italian as you can get if you have a, a fully Irish mother. So half Italian, and, but his dad was Italian and he knew the Italian community around Chicago. And he'd say, I'm not going to name this family. It had a, a classic Sicilian name. He'd say, yeah, Rita's father's. And he wouldn't say it, you know. Rita's father. And the implication, of course, was that what all of us wondered was actually true. He says, I know it. My dad knows it. Rita's father. <laughs> well, he was insinuating that Rita's dad was in the mob. And I kind of think he was. You know? The mob was active in the area. We never knew what he did. Never knew. And Rita was a sweet girl. Rita had a grandmother that lived with them. She didn't even speak English. And when we'd catch the bus to high school before we started driving at 6, 10 a.m., and we got home at midnight, um, but we did catch the bus at 6, 10. <laughs> when we caught the bus, Rita's grandmother, this Sicilian lady, dressed as a widow, entirely in black, would be walking down the road to the, she'd walk a mile and a half to the local Catholic church for mass. Years later, she did it every day of the week. Years later, Cheryl and I helped do a Bible study at a local Catholic uh, nursing home. And she'd be walking, she was now in the nursing home, she'd be walking around sort of this ghostly presence who'd be always dusting and cleaning the altar. In the, in the worship room at the center of the nursing home. Rita's grandmother loved the priests, loved the, the ceremonies, loved everything about it. Her son, he paid lip service to it but he had his way of life. This is the kind of observance that the Pharisees inculcated. The men would go, yeah. The women would go, ah. And the men would go, okay, yeah, yeah. Mom, you can do it. Yeah, we'll go with you. And they'd go about their lives. So, I want to close with the character that we're shown here of these men. What is the psychology, the thought process that leads to such a decline from the original intent and purpose? That they go from preaching the Messiah to denying him. Well, they're gatekeepers. And what do gatekeepers do? Well, they have a funny role. They protect. They stand at the gates of the city and they say, you can go in, you're not a threat. You, you stay out. They keep the gate. They have 
an essentially conservative role. And that's the Pharisees. They conserve God's truth. They defend true religion. They are Judaism's curators, conservators, the maintainers of God's law, the protectors of his worship. But where do you find conservators and curators? You find them in museums, where the goal is to retain and preserve the past, to sustain and protect and conserve the fleeting glory, the delicate glory of the past. But Christianity is not a religion dedicated to the past, nor was Judaism. True religion does not look to the past. True religion is marching to a glorious future. The past is bad. True religion says, no, we have a goal and we're marching to Zion. We're marching to the kingdom of heaven and we are taking the world captive for Christ. We are not keeping people out. We're gathering people in. This is vital to understand the Pharisees, every religion of the Pharisees is living with their eyes glued on the rearview mirror and saying, ooh, and they're driving in reverse. And they say, we wish we could get back to this time. We wish we could get back there. We're going back to the good days. Forgetting that in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the wisest of all men says, don't ask. It is not of wisdom to say, why was the be- yesterday better than today? Such a question is not of wisdom. Do not ask it. Christianity doesn't say yesterday, yesterday. How much of the world that you've lived in would be happy if we could go back 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 years? How much of the Christian world really is an attempt to reclaim the past, which was every bit as evil as today? How much? I know we're growing up in... In the Chicago suburbs in the 1950s in an evangelical church, I had the very strong suspicion that almost every elder in my church would be fully happy with the state of society in the church if they just turned back the clock to the 1950s when girls wore bobby socks and no one smoked pot, but the guys and the girls went out into the car together. You know, That was their idea of the good days. That was their idea of Christianity. This is always the case. Pharisees are trying to turn back the clock. So is Rome. You know, and the more focused on conservative Roman Catholicism that you get, the more they want to turn back the clock. They, the ultra-montane Roman Catholics, the ones who really believe the Pope, they also want to go back to the Latin Mass. They want to go back from, from, from the Council of the Vatican in the 60s. They want to turn back the clock. We would be better if we'd turn back in the popes. Well, they want to go back to the day before the Reformation. They want to go back to the time when the Holy Roman Emperor was crowned. Everyone who's a Pharisee is looking to the past. They want the past. They're conservative. And so... Christian leaders who proclaim themselves the guardians of true religion and have lots of women following them and men sort of mincingly, all right, going along, looking to the past, trying to gain the past, are denying the basic truth of God's word 
And they are just like the Pharisees because the Pharisees are looking to the past and the future is staring them in the face in the person of Jesus Christ. But no, they don't want the future. They don't want the past. They don't want to go back. Christ is here. He's present in our midst. His glory is surrounding us and our obedience the obedience of faith is what will conquer the world not the conservative return to the past fake piety of the pharisees the boldness of christ so i want to close by reading to you again from soren kierkegaard the danish one time theologian, then later in life a philosopher. He writes, in the splendid palace chapel, a stately court preacher, the preacher who preaches to the king, the cultivated public's elite, the elite of the world, this guy advances before an elite circle of fashionable and cultivated people and preaches emotionally on the text of the apostle, God chose the lowly and the despised. And nobody laughs. <laughs> this is the falsification of which official, of which safe, secure, wealthy, powerful, Western, evangelical Christianity is guilty. It does not make known the Christian requirement, perhaps because it's afraid people would shudder to see at what a distance from true Christianity we are living. Strictly speaking, he writes, it's not I who am ringing the alarm bell. I'm not sounding the fire alarm. He says, as a Christian, I am setting the fire in order to smoke out illusions and foolish tricks. It's a police raid and a Christian police raid for according to the New Testament, Christianity is incendiarism. Christianity is arson, setting the world ablaze. It is incendiarism. This is how Christ himself describes his commission, setting fire to individuals by introducing a passion that makes them at odds with what is naturally understood, an incendiarism that must necessarily cause discord between father and son and daughter and mother, an incendiarism that tears apart the generations in order to reach the individual. I have come to set fire on the earth and how I wish it were burning, Jesus says. This is true Christianity. This is the challenge posed to us by the Pharisees. To turn away from being firefighters to being arsonists, setting the world ablaze because we live in the power and in the, with the glory of Christ in our presence. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this difficult passage, which despite its difficulty, and perhaps because of it, very tied to it, is important for us and necessary for us to listen to and heed today. I pray, Father, that you'll speak to us in weeks to come through it, and I pray that you will forgive us this immense sin of being close to the kingdom, but not entering and keeping others out. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.